Just as the Lamanites embark on a campaign of massive aggression against the Nephites, a great leader arises capable of saving them, the legendary hero, Captain Moroni. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is Alma chapters 43 through 52, Stand Fast in the Faith of Christ. We have a listener question today. This comes from Larry D. in Saratoga Springs. He says, Every time I read the Book of Mormon, I get bogged down toward the end of Alma. What can you tell me about the war chapters that will help me change my attitude? That's a wonderful question, Larry. And if you read the Come Follow Me lesson this week, the manual gives you one important answer, which is that the physical struggles, the military struggles that the Nephites have, are a reflection of spiritual struggles that you and I have. So that's one answer. But as you know, I like to go a little bit deeper. People have this same complaint about the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. And when we studied those chapters, my solution was, instead of trying to go faster over them, to go slower over them. In other words, to treat them like they have something very important that you don't want to miss. And that's the answer here. So rather than trying to just read quickly through the war chapters to get through them, get them over with, put them behind you, uh, my solution is to read them more closely. And in order to do that, obviously, you would have to believe that they have some some importance, some significance, some meaning that you can take from them that would reward a closer reading. And I do believe that's the case. So, as you know, from the beginning of the Restoration, the prophets have been saying that we are to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Where, Well, here we have in the Book of Mormon an account of the decades leading up to the first coming of Jesus Christ, his first appearance to the Nephites. And I don't think it's an accident that we have an account of a the people of God, the people who want to worship Christ and the people of his church striving against evil in the, in the time leading up to the coming of Christ. In my personal opinion, th- these accounts are almost a manual for us in how to prepare the world for the coming of Christ and the penalties of what will happen to those who refuse. And more specifically, I believe that these war chapters are a parallel of what we can expect and what we can look back on in the recent past. So especially the 20th century, I would say that the uh, 20th century history has a strong reflection upon the war chapters in the Book of Alma. As you know, the history of World War II is a story of good versus evil, and there is it's very easy to cast the players in World War II, the different nations, the two great alliances, the Allied powers and the Axis powers, in the roles of good and evil. And those roles continued after World War II, and I don't want to get more specific than that, We, because it is my express purpose not to get political on this podcast, but the uh, those roles continue. <laughs> they continued after World War II, and they continue today. You'll notice in the accounts of the war chapters, the Nephites are considered good and the Lamanites are considered bad or evil, and that's definitely the case. Obviously, earlier and later in Lamanite history, they have great episodes of conversion, but generally, when Nephites desire to be evil, they become Lamanites. And the Nephites themselves, they struggle with internal righteousness, with loyalty, with cohesion, with unity. And so this is, this is the story of the war chapters. If you want to understand how to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ and how to pre- prepare yourself, then these chapters are the manual for you to do it. And we're going to talk about in today's lesson exactly how we use these war chapters to prepare ourselves, to prepare our families, and hopefully to prepare our societies if we can extend our influence that far. And that is the best answer I can give you. Thank you for that question, Larry. If you have a question for which you would like an answer from the scriptures, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. 
One thing about this lesson is we have a number of chapters to cover, and I might go through the narrative of it rather quickly, uh, but there are important points on which I'll spend more time. As we begin, as our lesson begins, we're in chapter 43, and the first thing that happens is that the Zoramites become Lamanites. Now, you may remember we've had several chapters worth of, of Alma's letters to his sons, but right before he began those letters, they had gone on a mission to the Zoramites. And these Nephite missionaries had facilitated the conversions of a number of Zoramites, and the Zoramite leadership had exiled those converts. And in fact, they had threatened warfare. They had threatened violence against the people of Ammon for taking them in. That's how much they hated the idea of anyone escaping their hegemony. And in the chapters that follow, we'll see exactly how strong was the hatred of the Zoramites towards the Nephites. It seems almost strange as we read about how much the Zoramites were willing to kill and destroy Nephite society in every respect. It seems almost, it seems quite amazing that they were willing to tolerate Alma and the other missionaries among them. You, you look back and you think uh, they, they should have killed them if they, hate, if they hate Nephites this much. Here come some Nephites trying to convert them back. And then, we, then that gives a little bit more context to the idea that Shiblon, the son of Alma, he was stoned for what he was teaching, right? Just to teach the truth. He was, they, they tried to kill him. Stoning was a method of execution. So the Zoramites were, they were violent against the missionaries, and that didn't change. Now, now they're full-on Lamanites. In fact, their hatred is so great that as soon as the Zoramites dissent, there's an, an immediate conflict between the Lamanites and the Nephites. The implication is that Zarahemna, this Lamanite leader, he is a Zoramite. Perhaps that's true. Uh, we don't have that explicitly here. We do know that later on, the leaders, all of the leaders of the, the armies of the Lamanites were actually former Nephites. They were Zoramites. So Zor these Zoramites and the Amalekites these uh, and the Amulonites, these are the three great dissenting groups that now exist among the Lamanites, and they are the ones who are the most violent. And Mormon makes the obvious point from that, that once, they've, once someone has known the truth and left it, then their hearts become much more hardened. But I think we can take it one step further and say that once a person has rejected freedom. They have to have had a reason to reject freedom. And this, this lesson is primarily about that one word, freedom. And the first battle that we concern ourselves with is this battle that happens right as soon as the Zoramites descend. And they're led by a man named Zarahemna, and they vastly outnumber the Nephites. Nevertheless, the Nephites are able to beat them. Now, this, this lesson is also interesting because there are a couple of innovations in warfare that the Nephites make that you think the Lamanites would, would think of as well. The first one is armor. So the, the army of Zarahemna shows up, and the Nephites have armor that the Lamanites lack. And when the Lamanites arrive and they see the armor of the Nephite army, they think, wow, we're basically naked. Our, our, we're defenseless. Our clothing has no defensive value. And that proves to be a decisive factor in their defeat. And later on in the lesson, we learn that Moroni innovates the concept of siege fortifications. And so the Lamanites are pursuing a war of conquest against the Nephites, and as such, one of the best ways of defending this is to withdraw into fortresses. And the fact that the Lamanites didn't think of that and didn't come prepared with any sort of siege-breaking technology is also decisive in many of their defeats. And so Moroni is not, Moroni, as we'll learn, the, the leader of the armies of the Nephites, this Captain Moroni figure, he is not only a fantastic tactician, meaning on the battlefield he knows exactly how to conduct the leadership of his forces, but he's amazing at strategy, which is what happens between battles. How do we position our forces? How do we supply them? How do we make sure that we have the morale and the strength that we need? Moroni, that's where he really excels, is in strategy. And we'll talk a lot about Moroni today. And the first introduction we have to this figure, Captain Moroni, who takes command over all of the armed forces of the Nephites, is here in chapters 43 and 44, this first battle. And I believe we're still, if you'll remember, we're still in the record of Alma. Mormon is now abridging Alma's record, and he will tell us when that ends, which is coming right after this. And so Mormon and Alma, 
I don't know which it is, but it seems like in the account of this battle, they want to teach us a few different concepts. Number one, the importance of resisting evil, no matter the cost, even if it includes violence, right? So another important concept being taught here is the justification for wars of self-defense. And if you take that on a spiritual level, it basically means Satan is out to kill you. He's not out to make things inconvenient for you. Uh, God's purpose is to test you before you return to heaven. But Satan's purpose is entirely opposed to that. It is to destroy you utterly. And so the precarious nature of the situation of the Nephites is meant to be a spiritual analog to the way we find ourselves in battle with Satan. And so it's justified. Anything that we can do, including violence, to defend ourselves against evil is justified, as long as we don't become evil ourselves. So that's that brings us to number three. Even, in, even justified conflict doesn't preclude mercy. When the Lamanites say, we don't desire to fight you anymore, then Moroni calls a halt to the destruction. He doesn't want to shed their blood just because they can, just because they have gained the advantage. Then Moroni that doesn't see that as a reason to kill them. He seeks every opportunity to allow them to stop the conflict, which seems pretty amazing. Moroni knows that he probably will face these same soldiers again if he lets them go. Nevertheless, when they, theirs is the war of aggression. And when they stop being the aggressors, then Moroni is willing to stop killing them. It's quite a testimony to how deeply the doctrine of Christ lives in Moroni's heart, because you would think the first priority of a general in war is to kill the enemy, is to defeat the enemy, win the war. But Moroni's first priority is to be a man of Christ, and everything else follows from that. Finally, I would say that the fact that the Nephites have armor and the Lamanites don't shows the superiority of the righteousness of God. So righteousness is better than wickedness. It has greater power to exalt. It lifts us, symbolized by the fact that a, that an armored warrior is more powerful than a nearly defenseless warrior. So these are some of the important lessons that Moroni and Alma are trying to teach us by the way that they have chosen to write this story. One other point I'll bring up from chapters 43 and 44 is, towards the end of the battle, the the leader, Zarahemna, he desires, at first he desires to surrender, but Moroni is going to require from him an oath that he will never again come to battle, and Zarahemna resists this oath. So then he picks up his sword again, and he rushes towards Moroni, and one of Moroni's soldiers, I wish we had this man's name, because uh, we would he would be a legendary figure as well. But he smites Zarahemna's sword to the earth and then takes off his scalp and puts the scalp on the end of his sword and raises it up and says, just like this scalp has fallen to the earth, you will all fall to the earth. He addresses the rest of the Lamanite army. You will all fall to the earth unless you enter into this oath and depart in peace. And many of them at that point leave. They're just so frightened by the fact that their leaders had his hair smitten off by, by one of Moroni's guards. And this is a symbol. So he says that it's an explicit symbol. It's not one that we have to look at the scriptures and realize it's a symbol. He makes it a symbol. He puts the scalp on the tip of his sword, and he says, just like the scalp fell to the earth, you will fall to the earth. Now we're going to talk about symbols a little bit later, but I, w- I want to put that in your mind so you'll remember it. That takes us on to chapter 45, and now we learn that the, that the record of Alma is done. So If we look back over the last several chapters, we will realize that we've been the storyteller, the chief storyteller has been Alma. And that's been true since the beginning of the reign of the judges, or from Alma chapter 1. We've been reading from the record of Alma, Mormon's abridgment of the record of Alma. So now we are beginning the record of Helaman, his son. And Helaman, or as we'll later come to know him, Helaman the first, He is a prophet, but I believe he would be more accurately described as a prophet general. And he's probably a general first in my mind. He is a warrior. He's a man of battle. Most of the accounts we have of of the Helaman, the son of Alma, 
are of him in battle. So in saying that, I don't mean to imply that he wasn't a spiritual prophet, that he was lacking in some spiritual aspect. What I mean is that he was principally a man of war. And that is simply a statement about his times, not necessarily a statement about the man himself. As we'll learn, he is the general who leads this wonderful army of the descendants of former Lamanites, who are called the 2000 Stripling Warriors. But that's in a later lesson. Right here at the beginning of the record of Helaman, we have the story of Alma, the prophecy of Alma. And this is one of the saddest chapters in all the Book of Mormon, because if you can imagine being Mormon, the great prophet historian who's reading this record and he is abridging all of the historical records that he has and then he comes across this prophecy from one of the greatest prophets in the Book of Mormon who says, write this down. I don't want these words to go forth right now among the people of Nephi, but write this down. 400 years after Christ comes to visit the Americas, to to visit the people of Nephi, 400 years later, all of the people of Nephi will be extinct, except a few that will remain, and eventually they will be hounded and persecuted until they too are extinct. And Moroni falls into this second group of people who survived the first purging of anyone who's righteous. And this is when he realizes, perhaps he knew it already, this is when he realizes there is no victory for him. Now, as you're thinking about this, you might realize that Moroni, the the angel that appeared to Joseph Smith, he was named after Captain Moroni in the Book of Mormon. So if we think about that for just a minute, first of all, we're understanding a little bit better the emotional state that the prophet Mormon must have been in. He had, uh, he had to battle, I believe, all of the days of his life, all of his work, he had to battle despair because he knew that he was destined for ultimate defeat. And of course, he's going to name his son after one of the great prophets of old. That is a tradition that goes throughout the Book of Mormon. But he had the choice of any of the prophets, any of the warriors, any of the people who fought on the side of Christ from the beginning, from the time of Lehi until his own time. He had the choice of any of those people after whom he could name his son. And the one he chose was Captain Moroni, this amazing general, who lived in the days of Alma and Helaman. And so we ask ourselves why. Why, over of all the people he could choose to name his son after, did he choose Captain Moroni? That's one of the questions that comes up for me when I read chapter 45 and I realize that Mormon knew that his battle was ultimately going to be a losing one. We'll talk more about this question over this week's lesson and next week's lesson. But part of this prophecy of Alma is the curse of the land. We, we find his prophecy in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 45. The curse of the land is destruction unto every people who do wickedly when they're fully ripe in their iniquity. And for an example of fully ripe, again, we know that the next several decades of Nephite history are the time leading up to the coming of Christ. And so if we want to understand what it means for a people to fully ripen in iniquity before Christ comes, then this is the part of the Book of Mormon that we would focus on. In verse 17, we find the blessing that Alma leaves upon the church to all who should stand steadfast in the faith from that time forth. In other words, this blessing is still in effect. So I would encourage you, if you want to know what blessing that Alma, the prophet, left upon anyone who should follow, from that time forth, the members, those people of the Church of Christ, who would stand steadfast in the faith. And uh, that's how we qualify for this amazing prophetic pronouncement. At the end of this chapter, we learn that Alma then departed. It's so interesting that rather than talk about the death of Alma, the burial, the way he was honored by his people— uh, he just picks up one day and leaves. Where did he go? The legend went out, the story went out among the Nephites that Alma had been buried by the hand of the Lord, as was Moses. In other words, that he'd been taken up alive, that he'd been translated, that he would not taste of death. We learn more about this process later on in the Book of Mormon. Three of the disciples of Christ have this choice placed before them and also have this fate. The Book of Mormon doesn't say explicitly that this is what happens to Alma, but they do say, it does say that here in chapter 45 that he's never heard of again. And the fact that Alma loves his people so much would lead us to believe that nothing could draw him away from them except a greater calling that the Lord called him to.
I don't think it's an accident that immediately after the departure of Alma, a very powerful evil arises among the people of Nephi. The, the man Amalickiah it will be the scourge of the Nephites for the next several chapters. And he is a leader of another large group of Nephite dissenters. And he is himself a, a large and mighty man. And it's interesting that this challenge, this spiritual and physical military challenge, comes against the Nephites right when they've lost their most powerful warrior in the cause of Christ, Alma the, the Younger. He is now departed out of the land, and so it's almost like the Nephites are left on their own without Alma to defend them. When I think of Alma the Younger, after his repentance, I think of a lion willing to defend himself with ferocity and might. And to be without him must have been very discouraging. So Amalickiah, what he does is he flatters a number of the lower-level functionaries in the Nephite government, what are called their lower judges. And he promises them, look, if you make me a king, then I will make you the rulers over this people. I'm going to need help to administer my power, and I will put you in positions of greater power than you've hitherto enjoyed. So this is interesting because we're really only about 18 or 19 years into the reign of the judges. It feels like it's been longer. But if you are, uh, and this uh, hopefully this isn't an ethnocentric statement because I know that the podcast has listeners all over the world, but if you, put, if you were to put this in terms of American history, the, this is a, the Nephites are a relatively new nation, almost like the American nation, let's say, in the 1790s. They're only 20 years in. So if their, their new country, their freedom, was born in 1776, then the 1790s are only uh, a few years later. They're really just beginning their history. And that's kind of where the Nephites are in their history. They are not yet used to the ideas of freedom. They don't, they don't bring up their children to understand that freedom is the number one thing that they need. And so over and over again, the Nephites find themselves struggling with this question of, should we go back to the kind of government that we used to know, where we had a king, a king to rule over us? And this is a very important, I think, it's not even uh, a spiritual analog, it's just an important concept for us to realize, which is that freedom is not the default state for people to live in. I think that's a common misperception today because this is how we grew up. But freedom, if you look at human history, freedom is actually a very, very minuscule exception to a very, very vast rule of tyranny. Tyranny is the rule and freedom is the exception in human history. That much is clear. And the Nephites are a perfect uh, display of this tendency in history because people, they tend towards safety. What they want is for someone to protect them, someone powerful, someone to tell them, here's the next thing that you need to do in order to remain safe, even if it means giving up their freedom. Freedom means each person has to take responsibility. So that is the great contrast, as I've said many times, the great contrast between Lamanites and Nephites are that the the Nephites are willing to take responsibility for their own well-being, or at least when they're at their righteous, in their righteous phases, the Nephites are willing to take responsibility for their own lives, their own spiritual well-being, their own progress, and the Lamanites want to put that responsibility on someone else, and therefore they need a powerful tyrant to rule over them and to guide them so that somebody else can take responsibility. So freedom involves having to take responsibility for your own spiritual life, your own physical life, your own military life, everything. And secondly, it involves extending freedom to others as well. Freedom means that you don't get to be there. No one gets to be better or more important than any other person. Those, those ideas are inimical to freedom. And in the uprising of Amalickiah, we have another example of that very same struggle, which is the struggle of safety and tyranny over freedom and responsibility. And Moroni represents this idea of freedom and responsibility. Amalickiah is one more representation of the idea of tyranny, victimhood, and followership. So we're in chapter 46, and I think uh, it's interesting. I hope that you all had a chance to watch our special episode on chiasmus. And as we talked about chiasmus, you realize that this poetic and literary form from ancient Hebrew, uh, it the way that it tells a story is it begins with one of the elements of the story, and then the, the elements get progressively more and more important until they reach the middle. 
and then those elements are repeated in reverse order. And so the most important elements of a story or of a concept will be treated in the very middle of anything that is chiasmic in nature. And if you think about all of the ways in which chiasmus has been used in the Book of Mormon that uh, Brother Mike Madsen talked about in his lesson, it seems kind of strange to think that the whole Book of Mormon would not also follow a chiastic structure. There have been many scholars who've talked about this. In my own personal opinion, if you take the Book of Mormon as a whole, again, we're using the idea that Mormon has chosen out of all of the people in the Book of Mormon to name his son after. He's chosen Captain Moroni. Here in chapter 46 and in chapter 48 are where Mormon makes his most notable statements about Moroni. First, in chapter 46, is the title of Liberty, this amazing action by Moroni. The entire country is sort of waffling on the borderline between deciding, should we go with the ideas of Amalekiah, or should we continue in what Mosiah II taught us about our freedom? He said, it's no longer expedient that a king should be should be set over you, because the voice of the people will generally choose righteousness. So are we willing to choose righteousness and take responsibility for our own government? And that means every person has to learn a little bit. We have to learn enough that when the voice of the people is called for, in other words, we have to vote, we have to know enough to vote ourselves a righteous leader. Are we willing to do that amount of work? Are we willing to govern ourselves, which requires work and knowledge and study and responsibility? Or would we rather just cede this responsibility into the hands of someone who says they want it, who's willing to work for it, someone like Amalekiah, who's willing to kill for it if need be? Well, he wants it that bad. Maybe we should just let him be the leader. That is how a lot of tyrants come to power, is people have enough apathy. They, they don't want to do the work to understand the principles of good government, and therefore whoever can tell them that the principles of good government are what they, what they want them to believe, they'll just believe it. So this is the choice that is perpetually before every generation of Nephites from the time they take over their, their self-governance. And Mosiah warned them about this. If the voice of the people is ever on behalf of wickedness, then, that, then you will be ripe for destruction. So Amalekiah is testing them. Are you ripe for destruction? Are you willing to choose someone who is as wicked as myself to lead you? Or are you willing to learn enough to know that you have to do the work that Moroni is requiring of you to choose your own freedom and fight for it? And Moroni knows this. The, the concepts of freedom are ingrained almost down to the bones of Moroni. So the question about Mormon is, why did he name his son Moroni? It is because Moroni loved freedom so much that he could never see the world in any other way. And he wanted his son, Mormon wanted his son to echo that philosophy. And I believe that he was successful. In the, it was a good choice to name his son Moroni because his son learned that lesson from this historical, what was to them a historical figure this Captain Moroni, who understood the cause of freedom and the responsibility and the work that was required to sustain it more than anyone else in the entire Book of Mormon. And if the Book of Mormon could be said to have a chiastic inflection point, in my opinion, it would be either here in chapter 46 or later in chapter 48, when Mormon says, Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Now, Mormon goes on to explain in the next verse that there were other men who were equally serviceable in the cause of Christ. Nevertheless, there's only one person about whom he chose to say all of those things. There's only one man after whom he named his son, and that was Captain Moroni. So even though there are other people who are no less serviceable, Moroni was the one of whom Mormon more particularly made mention. Now, the central figure, the most important person in the Book of Mormon is, of course, our Savior, Jesus Christ. However, the person that Mormon made the center of the narrative, the story of the Book of Mormon, is Moroni. And I, that this is my opinion, and I think there's a good reason for it, and that is because Christ is someone, well, let me back up, we often ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do in order to make a choice? But sometimes 
that question isn't very clearly answerable because Jesus never would have gotten himself into the position that we're in. How do you make it right when you mistreat someone, for example? What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would never be in that position. He never mistreats people. So sometimes that question isn't as helpful as, what would a person do? And what I believe Mormon is saying by placing Captain Moroni at the center of his narrative, this large narrative, the the entire Book of Mormon. What he's saying is, Captain Moroni is a man that we can use to ask that question. What would Captain Moroni do? What Captain Moroni would do is never give up. What Captain Moroni would do is always choose freedom. What Captain Moroni would do is do the work required to take responsibility. He would fight. He would inspire others. He would resist evil. He would have courage. He would testify of Christ. He would show mercy. And so, of course, Christ is our ultimate example. But occasionally we need more accessible, more mortal examples. And to me, the placement of Captain Moroni here at the center of the Book of Mormon is Mormon's way of testifying to us that this is our ultimate mortal example. If we want to understand how to be victorious over the forces of Satan, we need to understand how one man was able to be victorious over the forces of the Lamanites. And the perfect example, the beginning of his victory, is here in Alma chapter 46 with what is called the title of liberty. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about symbols. We talked about them before. Moroni, Captain Moroni, he rends his coat, and he takes this coat and he writes on it, and he says, In memory of our God, our religion, our freedom and our peace, our wives and our children. And he fastens it upon the end of the pole. And everywhere he goes, he goes throughout the country, he considers it his duty to raise an army. Now, understand, before he does this, the army doesn't exist. There's just one man. There is one man, Amalekiah, and he has a number of forces arrayed against Moroni. If Moroni does nothing, then he probably can find a place within this new Nephite society, which will be ordered around the wickedness of Amalickiah, he probably wouldn't die the next day. He could have kept his head down and gone along to get along. But instead what he does is he writes the, the, the standard of liberty, and he raises it, and he raises an army, and he opposes evil. Let's examine the content of what's written on this standard. If you were paying attention in Mike Madsen's special episode on chiasmus, you will remember he talked about parallelism. And you'll see here three examples of parallelism. It's a triple parallel. And he has three pairs right in a row. In memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, our peace, our wives, and our children. And these three groups of things, they all have an interesting relationship one to another, which is that the existence of of this of the latter depends upon loyalty to the former so let's look at god and religion religion doesn't exist unless we're loyal to god peace doesn't exist unless we're loyal to freedom our children don't exist unless we're loyal to our wives and i don't know whether that was intentional on moroni's part but he what he is teaching people is we have to be loyal to that we have to be loyal to these concepts that we know and understand. And right in the middle of the three concepts is freedom. If we want peace, then we have to be loyal to the cause of freedom. So wake up. All of you people that have been asleep, you're not fighting against the forces of Amalekiah. Wake up and join me. And what everyone does is they come and they see that Moroni has rent his coat. He's torn it in half. He's written all of this stuff on a torn coat. And I believe that he taught them why he tore his coat, because they all come forth and they tear their clothes and they throw their clothes at the feet of Moroni. So they are echoing the covenant that Moroni has made. And if you want to know what that covenant is, in the very next verse, after the title of liberty, after Moroni creates this, before he goes forth, he he puts on all of his armor and then he bows himself in mighty prayer and he asks for the blessings of God and he makes a covenant even though this, this chapter doesn't use that word, he makes a covenant with God that he will always fight for these things, and then he goes forth. And when people see his torn cloak, they, they echo his covenant. And so this is why I believe that Moroni must have taught them this, the reason why he tore his coat. But they say, if we ever fall into transgression, may God tear us, may God rend us as we has re- have rent our cloaks. And then they 
then they do Moroni one better. They throw their cloaks at his feet and they say, also, may God throw us at the feet of our enemies to be trod underfoot the way we threw our cloaks under your feet if we ever fall into transgression. Now, I want you to understand the, the significance of this symbol. What they are doing is they are inviting God to treat them the way they treat their garments. This is a very Hebraic thing to do. Uh, and I'm going to give you a few examples. I have a tag in my Gospel Library app that ties a number of scriptures together. And it starts in the Old Testament. Now, Moroni himself uses an image from the book of Genesis when he says, if you remember that part of the cloak of many colors of our ancestor, Joseph of Egypt, part of his coat of many colors was preserved. And, and at, just as a part of his cloak was preserved, may we be preserved. And so he echoes the symbol that the Nephites have just made around him, but he takes he does them one better, and he says, we as a people are like a garment, and may God treat us as he treated that garment in the past. May, may he treat us as he treated the garment of our ancestor and preserve us according to our faithfulness. Now, we learn in the book of Exodus that Aaron and the other priests that followed him, they had specific charges concerning the clothes that they would wear. They would keep these clothes clean. In the book of Leviticus, we learn that if someone was ritually impure, that when they wanted to become pure, they would wash themselves, and then they would also wash their garments. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Jeroboam is leaving Jerusalem. You'll remember that Solomon had a son named Rehoboam, and the kingdom was split at that time during the, during the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam between Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And Ahijah, the prophet, takes Jeroboam's cloak and tears it into 12 pieces and gives him 10 pieces of it. And this is a symbol that he will have 10 of the tribes of Israel under his rule, and two will be retained under the rule of Rehoboam. Before this, during the time of the wickedness of King Saul of Israel, Samuel has appeared before Saul and said, you have failed the Lord too many times. The, the kingdom will be taken away from you. And he's, then Samuel turns to leave. Saul lays a hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it tears. And Samuel turns back and said, just as my mantle has torn, so God will tear the kingdom from you. God placed a mantle upon Elijah, and when Elisha saw Elijah taken up into heaven, he rent his own mantle, and later on was given the mantle of Elijah. And so that symbolized the, the breaking apart of the presidency of the prophetic administration of Elijah and the establishment of a new administration when that mantle was settled upon his shoulders. And there are many more examples I could give from the Old Testament. One more I'll give from the New Testament. When Christ was crucified and he gave up the ghost, the, the veil of the temple at that hour was rent in two pieces. It split from the top to the bottom. And that what that did was the point of the veil of the temple was to hide the Holy of Holies. And so the splitting of that veil meant that God was exposed, that people had treated him as something not worthy of protection. And in a greater sense, it symbolized the departure of God's authority from the priesthood of Israel. And that was symbolized by this tearing in half of the veil of the temple. So the way that we treat our cloths, the way that we treat our garments, this is a very powerful statement. The, the Nephites seem to have believed this almost on an instinctual level, and so did the Israelites, which is we invite God to treat us the way we treat our garments according to our faithfulness. The scriptures are very rich with this sort of imagery. And today, Latter-day Saints who have been endowed in the temple, they wear a temple garment which has been given them. And we, if we want to understand the power that God gives us through these garments, we can read these accounts of how the people of God have treated their clothing and how they have invited God, the God of Israel, the God of the heavens, to treat them the way they treat their garments. And all of that is brought home to us when we see the title of liberty. We see that the existence of the blessings that the Nephites want, the religion, their peace, their children, is contingent on their loyalty to the concepts that God has taught, their God, their freedom, and their wives.
I'm also going to read you a note that I have in my scriptures about covenant symbols. This is uh, attached in my scriptures. I attached it to Alma chapter 46, 23. I wrote this covenant, the covenant that the people made when they threw down their garments at the feet of Moroni. This covenant has the characteristics of many priesthood ordinances, namely the likening of some token performance of a physical act to a later spiritual outcome and the expectation that God will correlate the two. Now, the important events in these chapters are that Amalekiah is then defeated. He does escape with a few men, but Moroni stops him taking all of his dissenters to the Lamanites. Now, we're going to have some more adventures, you might say, or conflicts with Amalekiah. But in the short term, Moroni is victorious. And that's the lesson we're meant to gain here, is that when evil is opposed the way that Moroni opposed Amalekiah with vigor and with faith, then God will be on our side. And eventually, though it might take quite a bit of struggle, he will give us the victory. Now, eventually, Mormon gets back to telling the story of what happened to Amalekiah after he has to flee from his battle with Moroni. And it's interesting because uh, I don't know exactly how Mormon would have been privy to all of these details, but Mormon has a pretty good account of what happens among the Lamanites and of Amalekiah's treachery. One thing we can say about Amalekiah is that he is loyal to no one. He has absolutely no integrity in his entire body. So the first thing he does is he betrays the the people that he used to represent the Nephites. He goes straight to the king of the Lamanites, and he convinces him to declare war on the Nephites, as, as all of the dissenters have done before him. And this is just one more example of a concept that exists throughout the Book of Mormon, which is the Lamanites are almost like the, or let me back up, the, the dissenters from the Nephites, they see the Lamanites almost like an untapped resource. If they want an army to, to conquer their friends, right, their fellow citizens, their fellow Nephites, anytime somebody's wicked enough and unscrupulous enough and they just want an army, they have this untapped resource of soldiers willing to fight and die for them by just dissenting. If they will just betray their friends and everything they've known, they can go raise an army. And why is this the case? What is it about the Lamanites that make them this ready resource for any Nephite who cares to dissent? And in my opinion, the answer is something to which I've referred many times, which is the attitude of the Lamanites that the Nephites have stolen something from them. They are victims to the Nephites. Their forefather Nephi stole from the Lamanites' forefather Laman, They're the righteous rule over the people. And so their ancestors have been mistreated in the past, and therefore today they are entitled to something that they didn't earn, which is rule over the Nephites. So any any Nephite who comes to them repeating this same story has the ability to manipulate them in adopting this philosophy that they're victims and that they're entitled. Then the, the Lamanites have given up a certain amount of their freedom and their ability to determine their own course in life. They've made themselves ripe for manipulation. And the Book of Mormon makes clear that on the part of the dissenters, their goal is only to subjugate their fellow Nephites. Not only do they want to put the Lamanites under subjugation, but that's easy. They want to subjugate the Nephites. Now, the Nephites aren't willing to be subjugated by talk. The Nephites have to be conquered by force of arms, but the Lamanites, any Nephite dissenter can just go to them and tell them that they've been wronged, and all of a sudden they lay down and offer up their armies for the taking. Now, in the case of Amalekiah, this isn't precisely true, because though the king declares war on the, on the Nephites, the armies of the, of the Lamanites rebel because they've been defeated by the Nephites too many times. It's not uh, principle that causes them to rebel. It's fear. They don't want to fight the Nephites anymore because they've just been destroyed too often. And the leader of these uh, rebels, these Lamanite rebels, is named Lehontai. So the Lamanite king is upset because he, what he said didn't happen. His, his commandment was disobeyed, and so he doesn't like that. And he appoints Amalekiah to be the leader of his armies that are still loyal. So Amalekiah, he's outnumbered. He has to go conquer these Lamanite rebels if he wants to go conquer the Nephites. 
And he decides that he's going to betray every single person that he comes in contact with. So first of all, his plan is to go get the command of all of the Lamanite armies. And he doesn't care whether the Lamanite armies are pointed in the direction that he originally intended for them, which is war with the Nephites. He just wants to be the commander. So to do that, he goes and tries to meet with Lehontai. There's a wonderful talk by Elder Hales. This is in the October 2008 conference, and he talks about how, general conference, and he talks about how Lehontai is in a high place, and he has the advantage of numbers on his side. But Amalekiah says, come down and talk to me. And Lehontai says no. And three times he sends to him, and, and Lehontai says no. And on the fourth time, Amalekiah comes almost to where Lehontai is camped, and fine, and he says, bring your guards with you. So Lehontai comes, finally meets with Amalekiah, and Amalekiah says, look, I'm going to betray the king of the Lamanites. You can come and surround all of my forces, and they will all be, doing, they will all be loyal to you. You'll, you'll be in charge of everyone. And then as soon as, so Lehontai likes this idea, and what he, what he didn't realize is, oh, I'm getting in bed here with a traitor. As soon as, as soon as I have this guy on my side, then he's going to do to me what he did to the king of the Lamanites. And that is, in fact, what happens. Uh, Amalekiah betrays Lahontai and has him poisoned and then gains command over the entire army. Now, the army, they have it in their mind. They're never going to attack the, the Nephites. So he hasn't convinced everyone to do what he wanted them to do. He's just put himself in charge. But then he takes the army back to the king of the Lamanites, and he says, here, I've, I've conquered all of the rebels. And the king of the Lamanites comes out, and this, this is when Amalekiah betrays him and has him killed. And so then he says, oh, it was the servants who did it. He's always got someone else to blame. And he goes in and he lies to the queen, and he betrays her. And given enough time, Amalekiah is so good at betrayal that he gains command over the entire nation of the Lamanites. And he eventually is able to convince them to be angry enough at the Nephites that they do exactly what they didn't want to do before, which is go against them to battle. And the, the point of all of this is not what an evil person Amalekiah is. The world will never lack for people willing to do evil. The, the point of these chapters is what easy marks the Lamanites were for Amalekiah's evil. They had a philosophy which allowed them to be vulnerable to his particular brand of evil, and because they did, it only took one year for him to not only gain command over all of their armies, but also change their minds from being unwilling to go to battle to being willing to go to battle. And he takes them to this terrible war where they're destroyed over and over again. Now, I'm not going to give an account of the battles except to say that after one particular battle, Tiankum, one of Moroni's generals, he sneaks into Amalekiah's camp at night and kills him in the dark. And it happens to be on the very end of the year. And so, Happy New Year, the Lamanites wake up and they're without a leader. And they realize, what are we doing here in Nephite lands? They wake up and they're afraid because they've relied on Amalekiah to tell them what it is they should be doing and why. And as soon as Amalekiah is dead, the Lamanites have no more courage, and they immediately withdraw to all of the fortresses that they've been able to conquer. Now, on the part of the Nephites, in chapters 50 and 51, we, we have the story of the kingmen. Again, as has happened with, from the beginning, right, from Amalasai, one of the first people who wanted to be king over the Nephites, right after the reign of the judges. This is from Alma chapter 1 and 2. Uh, right from Amalasai, all the way to the present time, there have been people who want to establish a king over the Nephites. And so we have king men again, and Moroni puts them down militarily. He has to fight them, and he has to try them and imprison them. And because the Nephites are not united, the Lamanites actually conquer a number of the fortified cities, these strongholds that Moroni has created along the southern parts of Nephite lands to protect their borders. So if we go back to Larry's question of what good does it do us to read the war chapters. Number one, we have a number of spiritual lessons we can learn about how the Nephites defended themselves militarily. Number two, God is teaching us how to prepare ourselves and our world for the coming of Christ. 
Number three, when we learn about what was what the vulnerabilities of the Lamanites were and what the vulnerabilities of the Nephites were, then we look in our world today and we spot those same vulnerabilities and we learn to counter them. So the vulnerability of the Lamanites was their attitude that they're not responsible for what happens to them today because they're entitled to consideration because of an ancient grievance. And this made them easy to manipulate and turned them into basically a resource able to be exploited by any unscrupulous person that came along. The Nephites, on the other hand, they weren't willing to fight for their own freedom. They weren't willing to be united and do the work that the cause of freedom required. And so they constantly had to resist those elements within their own numbers that would tend to undermine their own freedom. And the final point I would make is this. Moroni is not just a historical figure. He's not just a great leader. He's not just an example. We all of us have within us an Amalekiah and a Moroni. We have a voice in our head that says, you should take courage right now. You should show, show faith, show mercy. You should testify of Christ right now. You should wake up and make a covenant. You should do actual work to preserve your freedom. You should fight for the cause of God. And we also have an Amalekiah voice inside all of us that says, you don't have to show courage right now. Just tell a lie. You can betray the things that you love in order to be safer or to gain more power. You should hold a grudge. You should forget loyalty. You should appeal to the baser parts of human nature of those around you. And in these stories, in these chapters in the Book of Mormon, we learn what the end result of each of these philosophies is. What results from listening to these two voices, the Amalekiah voice and the Moroni voice within each of us. And the message of the war chapters is that if all of us could listen to the voice of Moroni and always would listen to the voice of Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would be shaken forever and the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.